Sydney this week. Uh, the warning level was increased to catastrophic. Uh, apparently this category of warning was only introduced in 2009 and it was the first time it was used in the Sydney Illawarra region. Uh, already burning bushfires together with searing temperatures and high winds were predicted to provide the perfect conditions for catastrophic loss of life and property in our city. Uh, now, as we heard in our kids' talk this morning, warnings are given so that you can take action. So you can take action to avoid real danger, isn't it? And so on Tuesday, as the, the smoke increased and as the temperatures soared and the winds picked up, it was clear who were the ones who heeded the warnings. Uh, many fled from their properties to safety or had their houses sprayed with, um, you know, that pink stuff that they sprayed on houses. Did anyone have their houses sprayed with that uh, here? Uh, or they found ways to keep themselves out of harm's way. But others delayed in taking action and some were even given this terrifying statement. They were told, it is too late to leave now, and sheltering is your only option. Uh, I don't know how you would feel if you heard that and a bushfire was on the way. Uh, now, we've been working our way through Matthew's Gospel for the last little while, and uh, in today's passage, uh, I want you to see that Jesus himself gives a serious, serious warning to his disciples. Uh, obviously, he's speaking about some kind of great spiritual danger. And so as we hear this warning from Jesus this morning, uh, the question is, uh, are you and I ready to heed that warning? Are you and I ready uh, to listen to the things he says and take appropriate action? Well, what then is the warning? Uh, you can see it there in chapter 16, verse 6, can't you? Chapter 16, verse 6, Jesus says, that said to them, that is the disciples, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, uh, we've come across this image uh, of leaven before, haven't we? Um, where, where have we, we seen this image of the leaven? Can anyone remember? It wasn't that long ago. No? Chapter 13, thank you. In chapter 13, where Jesus is uh, speaking in parables, uh, he uses the image of leaven, and he uses it in a very positive sense. But here, notice that he uses it much more negatively. Um, by the way, if you don't know what leaven is, uh, leaven is basically sourdough. Uh, it's, it's dough that is left over from yesterday's bread that uh, they used to mix in with today's bread uh, in order to make it rise. Uh, it's a bit like uh, the, the yeast that you would use in, in more modern forms of baking. And so Jesus is warning against something that can potentially sort of work its way into your life and spread in such a way that it puts you in great spiritual danger. But what is the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Well, later on in verse 12... Uh, you can see there that the disciples finally understand that Jesus is speaking here about the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, 
who were, if you like, the ruling elite of the nation of Israel. But what is the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Well, when I first read this passage, I thought that Jesus is speaking here about the specific teaching of uh, each of these groups. Uh, That is what is dangerous. And so you might know that the Pharisees were those who added man-made rules or, or traditions to the word of God and insisted that you keep these rules if you were going to be right with God. Uh, you know, even to this day, there is no shortage of religious groups who add to the word of God and burden people with all these rules and regulations that you must keep if you want to be a Christian person. And so you have all these groups like the Roman Catholics and the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons who uh, simply add human works to simple faith in order to receive God's gracious gift of salvation. Uh, Or you might know that the Sadducees were those who denied the resurrection in the Bible. In other words, they were not the ones who kept adding to the Scriptures. Rather, they were the ones who subtracted from the Scriptures. And again, to this very day, there are religious groups who subtract uh, the critical things in, in God's Word in this way. Liberal Christianity, for example, often denies that Jesus physically rose from the dead. Uh, Or they deny that miracles uh, happened in the Bible. Uh, Or the truth of the Trinitarian nature of God. They they rip out what is at the heart of Christianity, you see. And so, friends, I, I thought what Jesus is warning against here is false teaching that might work its way and spread in the lives of the disciples. Uh, Now, it is true, isn't it, that the New Testament is full of warnings against false teaching. Almost on every page of the New Testament, uh, there's warning after warning. But uh, you may or may not have noticed this, but if you have a look at the word teaching in verse 12, um, it is a word that is in the singular rather than the plural. And so... Jesus is not speaking here about two different kinds of teaching, uh, one that belongs to the Pharisees and one that belongs to the Sadducees, but he's speaking about something that is common to both the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so what is this teaching that Jesus is warning his disciples about? Well, here's what I think. Uh, I think that uh, what Jesus is warning against here is not any kind of specific teaching of the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees, but he is warning against the attitude of cynical skepticism towards Jesus as God's king. Now, that's what he's warning against. And uh, you can see this kind of attitude in what the Pharisees and Sadducees say to Jesus back in verse 1. Uh, if you have a look back in verse 1, it says there, And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Uh, It's extraordinary that the Pharisees and Sadducees, in the first instance, are together here, for they were two groups that, uh, both on a political uh, level and at at a religious level, 
were often at odds with one another. They, they had very little to do with one another. But here, notice that they are united. They've come together, for they both feel threatened by Jesus in some way. However, did you also notice that they asked Jesus for a sign or some sort of great miracle that will prove to them that Jesus really is from heaven, that he really is God? Now, if you think about it, it's an astonishing thing to ask for, given what has just been happening uh, in Matthew's Gospel, as, as David rightly pointed out. You know, Jesus has just fed more than 9,000 people with a few fillet of fishes in two spectacular feeding miracles, one after the other. He's just healed thousands of people so that the lame are now walking and the crippled are now healthy and the mute are now speaking and the blind are now seeing, you see. He has been doing miracle after miracle such that even the Gentiles, the non-Jews, are glorifying the God of Israel and yet these Pharisees and Sadducees come and say, well, show us another sign. In other words, these Pharisees are not sincere in what they ask for. We're told there that they want to test Jesus. Instead of dealing with the signs, instead of wrestling with the evidence that has already been given and recognizing Jesus as the Lord and King sent by God, well, they simply want to reduce Jesus to a performing monkey. Show us a sign, Jesus. Do what we want you to do for us. But for those who keep seeking a sign, I want you to see that Jesus refuses to play their game. He refuses to dance to their music. He refuses to be their performing monkey. For Jesus sees what they are really like, you see. And so he goes on to expose the hearts of the Pharisees and Sadducees. You can see it there in chapter 16, verse 2, verse 2, where Jesus says to them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Uh, now, I'm no sailor, as you probably can tell, but uh, this is where we get the saying, uh, red sky at night. Sailor's delight. Red sky in the morning, sailor's warning. Has anyone heard that before? Yeah, a few of us. Uh, it seems that in common meteorology, uh, there is some truth to the fact that if the sky is red at night, uh, well, the weather is going to be calm, sailor's delight. And if the sky is red in the morning, then it means that a storm uh, is brewing. But uh, do you see the bigger point that Jesus is making here? That what he's saying to the Pharisees and Sadducees is, you guys, you are very clever at interpreting the signs when it comes to things like the weather. But you simply cannot or will not interpret the infinitely more important signs that suggest God's king has come into the world bringing his kingdom. Uh, you might remember the Boxing Day tsunami in 2014. Uh, it's hard to imagine that uh, almost overnight, 
almost a quarter of a million people died. Uh, one family, however, who did not die that day was a British family on holidays in Thailand. And the reason why they didn't die is because the 10-year-old daughter in the family, uh, Tilly Smith was her name, Tilly Smith, uh, this 10-year-old daughter paid really careful attention during her geography class. Uh, in the weeks before the holiday, her geography teacher taught that if you look out and you see the sea kind of foaming, a bit like the head of a beer is how she described it. I don't know how she knew about that. But uh, if, if you see the sea foaming like the head of a beer, then you, you know what a, that a tsunami is coming. And so she recognized what was happening and warned her family, and they were able to get onto higher ground. But you see, so many more missed the sign that was there for all to see, isn't it? And friends, isn't that what our world is like? Uh, we can interpret the signs of the weather so that we can uh, make decision, decisions that make our life more comfortable tomorrow. We can interpret the signs of the housing market so that we can try to secure the future. We can interpret the signs of the financial markets so that we build up a comfortable nest egg for our retirement. We're very clever at doing things like this. And yet when it comes to interpreting the signs that point to who Jesus is, when it comes to really understanding uh, who he is and understanding the eternal consequences of what a relationship with him might bring, well, most people in our world just say, show us another sign. But here's the thing. It's not that the Pharisees simply cannot see the signs or the evidence that point to Jesus being God's king. Rather, it's that they don't want to see the signs, you see. Because if they wrestled with the signs that Jesus had been giving, then they would have to recognize him as God's king. And that means repentance. It means leaving your old life behind and starting to follow him and serve him and no longer living for myself, you see. It's much easier to simply demand more from Jesus and never be satisfied with what he gives than to acknowledge him as king and serve him. Isn't it? Now, you might be someone who has been coming to church for a long time and you keep on wanting to know more and more and you demand more and more evidence from Jesus, but perhaps you've never come to a point where you personally acknowledge Jesus to be your king, to serve him and to change your life so that your life is governed by what he says now, to give up certain things in your life, because following Jesus suggests a different course. And if that's you this morning, then I want to ask, is it because deep down you really do not want to acknowledge him? 
or be ruled by him. It's much easier just to keep on ruling your own life and simply wanting to demand more and more from Jesus, unsatisfied with what he actually gives. Is Jesus your Lord, whom you serve, or is he merely your plaything? But you see, friends, if Jesus really is God's king, then it is not really our opinion of him that matters. Prove yourself to us. Show us that you're really the king. It's not our opinion of him that really matters, is it? It's actually his opinion of us, of me, and of you. And so here, the Pharisees and Sadducees want signs so that they they can give their verdict on Jesus. But you'll notice there that it is Jesus who actually gives his verdict on them. You can see it there in chapter 16, verse 4. Chapter 16, verse 4. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Uh, Now, friends, I think it's worth clarifying that it's not wrong to look at the signs uh, or the evidence that point to Jesus' lordship or kingship. I mean, the Gospels are full of signs, aren't they? It's full of evidence that's meant to convince us that Jesus is God's king. It would be foolish giving your life to someone without actually having a look at the evidence and seeing that there is good evidence. But the problem that with the Pharisees and the Sadducees is that they just keep on asking for more. They're never satisfied with the, the, the evidence that Jesus brings because they've already made up their minds in their hearts that they're not going to follow him. In fact, the word for seek in verse 4 um, is a present continuous in the original language. In other words, uh, Jesus is not saying it's wrong to seek uh, for evidence or for signs, but it's wrong to continue to seek evidence because you are never satisfied with what Jesus gives. And Jesus would say that this is evil, for he's ultimately a rejection of God's kindness and of Jesus' kingship. And it is adulterous because on the outside you want others to think you are married to God when on the inside you have no interest in following him or serving him or doing what he says. But what is the sign of Jonah? That's the million-dollar question here, isn't it? Um, Do you want to turn to the person sitting next to you and share what you think the sign of Jonah is here that that Jesus speaks about. I'll just give you a few quick moments to catch your breath and uh, speak to the person sitting next to you. Uh, What is the sign of Jonah? Uh, All right, friends, uh, that's enough time. Uh, Let's come back together. Uh, Does anyone want to have a guess at what the sign of Jonah is in in, uh, this part of Matthew's Gospel? Who's going to be brave? Uh, Charles. Aha, uh-huh. so Jesus' death and resurrection. Yep. Uh, and uh, why do you think that? Yep. Yeah, so uh, Jonah, as we read this morning, was uh, in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. Kind of sounds a bit like Jesus' death, doesn't it? Uh, that he also was uh, crucified and buried. And then uh, Jonah was vomited out. Um, and that kind of sounds a bit like the resurrection of Jesus. Yep. 
Any other thoughts? Yeah, it could be his message of judgment to the Ninevites. Yeah, which uh, uh, we, we also read about this morning, that he, he leaves Israel and goes to Nineveh, which is a Gentile area, and he preaches a word of judgment. You know, God is going to destroy this city, so repent. Um, I must confess, uh, on Monday morning, I had no idea uh, what the sign of Jonah was. Uh, on Wednesday morning, I picked up a few commentaries, and I ended up becoming even more confused. Um, I think some people thought it was the death of Jesus. Uh, others thought it was the resurrection of Jesus. Um, others said, like Andrew, it was the preaching of Jesus. Um, I'd, I'd be interested to know what others think. Uh, maybe we can talk about this over morning tea. But uh, during the week, um, in my desperation, I, I did... You know, I, I looked at different sources, and uh, here's one that I think makes best sense of what is going on here. Okay, so you ready? Uh, who is Jonah? Well, Jonah is an Old Testament prophet to God's people in Israel, who we know were, were an evil and adulterous generation. However, if you know the story, um, as we've read, you will know that Jonah, uh, God tells Jonah to preach a message of repentance, not to Israel, but to the Gentile Ninevites. So what does Jonah do? Well, because he doesn't like the Ninevites, uh, he decides to run away from God, which is a foolish thing because God simply sends a big fish to swallow him up. In other words, uh, Jonah metaphorically dies in the belly of the great fish, However, that's not the end of the story, for after three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, Jonah experiences a resurrection of, thought, uh, of sorts because um, the, the, the fish vomits Jonah up, and uh, Jonah, the fishy-smelling prophet, then leaves Israel and goes to the Gentile Ninevites to preach God's message of repentance. And what happens in Nineveh? Well, to the astonishment of everyone, Every man and his dog in that city repent and turn to God and are spared judgment. And so the sign of Jonah, I think, is that just as Jonah died in the belly of the fish and was resurrected to preach repentance, not to the evil uh, and adulterous generation of Israel, but to the Gentile city of Nineveh, so Jesus will die for sin on the cross and rise to new life. And if people of Israel, like the Pharisees and Sadducees, who are the evil uh, and adulterous people of that generation, if they continue to reject the king, then Jesus will simply go elsewhere with the gospel. He will preach the gospel to the Gentiles and leave Israel in their doom. Now, I don't think this is simply a warning to the ruling establishment of Israel. Um, you may have seen the triumphalism of many atheists whenever new data comes out about the decline of Christianity in the West. Uh, we saw it in the 2016 census, which suggested that mainline Christianity was on the decline, and the fastest-growing religious demographic are those who ticked no religion. 
Uh, we see it in the papers where usually white Anglo-Australian journalists who have rejected God delight in the decline of church attendance and predict that Christianity will one day be a thing of the past. But friends, listen very carefully to what Jesus says here. When people who have had, who have had every privilege and every sign from God continue in their cynical scepticism and refuse to acknowledge Jesus as the king, then Jesus will simply take his business elsewhere. In Australia, the, the, the fastest growing churches are not the Anglo churches, but the migrant churches. Worldwide, the church in Africa and India are growing with phenomenal speed. Do you know where the fastest growing church is at the moment? You'll never guess it. It's in Iran. One Iranian pastor says, What if I told you the mosques are empty inside Iran? What if I told you no one follows Islam inside of Iran? Would you believe me? This is exactly what is happening inside of Iran. God is moving powerfully inside of this country. Jesus will simply take his business elsewhere if people persist in their hard-heartedness. He will not beg. And you can see it at the end of verse 4, which I think is the most terrifying verse in this passage. At the end, so Jesus left them and departed. It's as though Jesus the king is simply shaking off the dust of his feet as he leaves them and takes the offer of entering the kingdom next door. Now, if Jesus warns his disciples against the danger of cynical skepticism, which ultimately leads to being rejected by God's king, what then is the answer? How are disciples of Jesus to be different? Well, in the second part of our passage today, what we see is that Jesus' disciples are to have perceptive faith. Perceptive faith. And you can see this in what Jesus says to his disciples after his warning about the leaven. You know, the, the disciples are a bit obtuse here. Uh, they're, um, they're like buffheads. Um, I said to my wife, I'd love to use that word in my sermon one day. They're, they're like buffheads. Um, they are much like us. For they think that when Jesus talks about leaven, he's simply worried about not having enough bread to eat, you see. But listen to what Jesus says in verse 8. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? You buffheads. You see, what Jesus wants from his disciples is perceptive faith. He wants them to come to him in faith and trust him, and learn from him deeper spiritual truths. 
That's why Jesus rebukes his disciples here for not understanding much about the feeding miracles. Well, you see, in the feeding miracles where he feeds the 5,000 and the 4,000, Jesus wasn't simply just putting on a dinner party with lots of bread. Now, he was showing the deeper spiritual reality that just as Moses fed the people of Israel with manna from heaven in the Exodus as he led them to the promised land, well, Jesus is the one who feeds his people with the very bread of life as he leads them into the promised land of heaven itself. In other words, friends, the solution to avoiding cynical skepticism is to continue going to Jesus in faith, to keep learning from him deep spiritual truths. It's about being humble enough to sit at his feet regularly and learn from him. It's about being teachable so that we understand more of his ways. You see, Jesus, the disciples of Jesus are those who never take off their learner plates. For the very nature of being a disciple is to sit at Jesus' feet and learn from him. I reckon one of the best little books out there at the moment is this uh, little booklet called Listen Up by Christopher Ashe. Has anyone read this book before, by the way? Uh, fantastic book. Um, if you haven't read the book, I highly recommend you get a copy and have a read. I've actually bought a number of copies um, and left them at the back there. Uh, only $3. That's a bargain. And so um, I know not everyone can purchase it today, but if you grab a coffee, copy and read it and digest it, uh, uh, it will be of enormous benefit to you. And uh, if we run out, just leave your name at the back and um, I'll be able to order some more copies in. Um, I think this book is a great diagnostic to work out whether you and I are people who, are, who regularly go to Jesus in faith, willing to learn from him. Uh, it will help you to work out whether you really are humble and teachable or arrogant and think you know it all, especially when it comes to listening to God's word at church. Uh, in the table of contents, uh, this book lists uh, seven ingredients, uh, seven ingredients for healthy sermon listening. Uh, here are the seven things that suggest that you have the right attitude towards God's word. Seven, seven things, seven things. Uh, number one, expect God to speak. Expect God to speak. Number two, Admit that God knows better than you. Number three, check the preacher says what the passage says. Hear the sermon in church is number four. Number five, be there week by week. Number six, do what the Bible says. And number seven, do what the Bible says today and rejoice. Friends, do you come to church each week expecting God to speak to you and transform you? Or do you come to church rather cynically, having made up your mind that you're not going to change? Think about that. Are you someone who comes to God's word admitting that God knows better than you, which means 
perhaps being prepared to be challenged and rebuked by God's word? Are you someone who regularly checks that what the preacher says is something that the Bible says? Because the Bible is your ultimate authority as God's word. Are you someone who makes it a priority to listen to the sermon in church? In some ways, I feel like I'm preaching to the converted here because you're in church listening to the sermon. But you might have a baby and uh, it makes sermon listening at church very difficult sometimes. But are you working out with your spouse how you might work together so that you're helping one another to listen to God's word? Or is church a time when... We do everything but listen to God's word. Are you someone who is at church every week? Are you someone who is leading your children to be at church every week? Because in the light of eternity, it's infinitely more important to you that you and your family are listening to God's word rather than Sunday sport or work or assignments or whatever crops up on that particular day. And do you do what the Bible says, not putting it off, but doing it today? Can you imagine what church would be like if each and every one of us came to church with this kind of attitude every week? But then that is no more or no less than being a disciple of Jesus, isn't it? For the disciple of Jesus is not the one who has the attitude of cynical scepticism towards him, but the genuine disciple of Jesus is the one who regularly goes to him in faith to learn deep spiritual truths and joyfully serves Jesus and serves his people, even at great cost to yourself. Is this you? Is this the kind of disciple that you desire to be? Are you a genuine disciple of Jesus? Are you going to heed Jesus' warning? Are you going to do something about it today if you've been challenged and rebuked by God's word? Or will you simply say, Jesus, show us another sign? Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word to us this morning and we thank you especially for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his death, we thank you for his resurrection and we thank you that he is Lord over all people and all things and that he has given us his spirit so that we might uh, walk in his ways. Uh, Father, we are sorry for the times when we have not had the right attitude towards Jesus and have thought little of his word. And we are sorry for the times when uh, we've just ignored his word because other things have taken priority. Please forgive us for the times when we have presumed upon his grace and have not responded to him with repentance and changed lives. Help us to change and to have the right attitude towards him. Help us not to be cynical and sceptical, but those who go to him in faith 
and delight learning from him and serving him and loving him who loved us first. And Father, we pray that as a church we might be the ones who love coming together regularly to hear your word and to help and encourage one another to do it more and more each day. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.